0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our uh, Bible study tonight from uh, Psalms chapter 9. Psalms chapter chapter 9. Let me uh, start with introduction. The author of this Psalm is David, and this Psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving for victory. Perhaps David wrote this psalm remembering the victory over Goliath. Most probably he wrote it after he killed Goliath. And from this point, from Psalm 9, until Psalm 148, we know that we have two versions Uh, of the Old Testament. The Septuagint version which is the formal version of the Coptic Orthodox Church and also the formal version of all Orthodox Churches and also the Catholic Churches. And we have the version that was taken from the Hebrew which is very common in our hands. So from Psalm 9 to Psalm 148, the versions differ over the numbering of the Psalms for example in the version that we have uh, in our hands like New King James uh, Authorized King James Revised Standard Version you will find Psalm 9 just 20 verses but in the Septuagint Septuagint is the translation to the Greek and uh, and was translated by 70 scholars 300 years before Christ. That's why Septuagint means 70. And Saint Jerome translated the Old Testament from the Greek, the Septuagint to Latin. And the Latin is called Vulgata. So in the Septuagint and in the Vulgata, we find that 9 and 10 are combined into one psalm. Psalm 9 and 10 in the version that we have like New King James or Authorized King James we call it Masoretic they are in in these versions two Psalms but in the Septuagint one Psalm that's why from Psalm 9 until Psalm 148 there is inconsistency in numbers but at the end there is one Psalm and the Septuagint is divided into two Psalms so from 149 and 150 it is corrected but some believes that there are many convincing reasons that these two Psalms were one Psalm meaning the Septuagint which is the official version of the Old Testament in the Orthodox Church is correct in combining two Psalms Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 why when you read the Psalm in Hebrew there was a certain Hebrew alphabetical structure for example the first verse starts with the Alpha second verse start with Vita etc according to the Hebrew alphabet and this structure extends into psalm 10 for example, if the last verse, verse 20 uh, uh, started with a certain letter then the first verse of psalm 10 is the following letter which means these two psalms were one psalm also, each psalm has a title but when you look at Psalm 10, there is no title, which support the view that Psalm 10 is a continuation of Psalm 9. Also, these two Psalms, 9 and 10, have in common certain characteristics, certain expressions, which occur rarely elsewhere, which means it's one Psalm. But however, the Hebrew version that we have, count them as two separate Psalms. Maybe, why why in the Hebrew, or in the Masoretic text, they divided into two Psalms? Because Psalm 9 seems to be a thanksgiving for victory. Expressing triumph and hope. But Psalm 10 is a prayer against violence and against blood. So maybe that's why when they split, when they numbered the Psalms, they split this Psalm into two Psalms. So, what is the title of Psalm 9? The title is To the Chief Musician upon Moth Laban a son of David. Chief musicians that we said before either it is instruction to the leader of the choir how to be chanted or chief musician can be a symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then what is Moth Laban some believe it refers to a certain tune or a certain instrument upon which this psalm was chanted. In New King James Version did not say upon Muslim, but it says the death of the sun death of the sun most probably refer to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ as a prophecy and his resurrection and how he defeated Satan. So it's a victory over Satan. Uh, Or uh, historically the death of the son refers to the death of Batshapa' first son. This son was uh, the result of the sin that David committed or uh, the death of Nabal or the death of Absalom. but as I said many believe it's concerning our Lord Jesus Christ in the Syriac version the title says a psalm of David Concerning Christ so the, the death of the son is Christ receiving the throne we know the throne of Christ is the cross so the death of the son and the kingdom defeating his enemies as we said maybe for David historically when he defeated Goliath but for the Lord Jesus Christ defeating Satan the title in the Septuagint and in the Latin Vulcate It's written a psalm of David for the end concerning the secrets of the son. The secrets of the son means the mysteries, the secret of salvation, the mystery of salvation on the cross. So this psalm has a prophecy about the secrets of the son, how he saved the world. But unto the end, unto the end, the word the end can refer to Christ himself. As we read in Romans chapter 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So what is the end of the Old Testament and the prophecies? Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, you will be saved and you will be righteous. But other scholars said, unto the end means this psalm should be chanted always, always, continually and frequently, declaring that this psalm is of great value and uh, should be used always unto the end of the ages. As I told you, this psalm is 20 verses. We can divide it into four sections. Verse 1 and 2, praising God. 3 to 8, the Lord, the judge. 9 to 11, the Lord, the refuge. From 12 to 20, the Lord, the redeemer. So let's start by verse 1 and 2. As I told you, it is a psalm of thanksgiving. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O High. So the opening of this psalm is a thanksgiving uttered in gratitude for the psalmist's victory over his enemies. And this victory was because of the presence of God. So, this psalm is thanksgiving for God's wonderful deeds. David recognizes that God is worthy of praise, worthy of praise with the whole heart, not partially or just by the words of the lips. Wholeheartedly means with a sincere, affectionate, and devout heart. My whole entire being is praising God. In the same way, all of us, we must determine in our heart to praise and thank the Lord. Some circumstances make us want to mourn while we should be praising God. That's why every single service in the Church starts with thanksgiving, even the funeral. When we pray the funeral, we start by giving thanks and praising God. In order for our hearts to always, always praise God, we need to remind ourselves with the marvelous works of God there is a disease called spiritual amnesia when we we forget the blessing of God and sometimes when God does a marvelous work with us, we rejoice in the gift but we should rejoice in the giver, not in the gift itself. In the Latin Vulcate, this psalm says, I will confess unto thee, O Lord, not I will praise you, I will confess unto thee, O Lord. St. John Chrysostom says, Confession takes two forms, when we read the word confession. Either condemnation of one's own sins I confess to the Lord that I committed these sins but I confess to the Lord mean I declare his glory it is thanksgiving to God and David said I will tell of all your marvelous works so David is describing for us an important way to praise God which is to tell of all his marvelous works to speak about his works either with the whole world or with the person especially simply remembering and telling the great things God has done is a wonderful way to praise him Then he said, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will be glad and rejoice in you. He would express his joy in God. In knowing that there was such a being. Just when you reflect on the works of God, this makes the person glad, joyful, happy. He rejoices in all that God had done for him. And this is an evidence of his favor and friendship with God. Then he called him, I will sing a praise to your name, O Most High, O Most High. Which means there is none greater than God. He is the Most High. None higher than him, none mightier than him. This is the God to whom the psalmist is crying out. The mightiest God, the most marvelous, the most praiseworthy being. And David used two words here, I will be glad and rejoice. Glad and rejoice express the greatness of this joy. Especially the word rejoice means very deep joy joy unspeakable and full of glory verse 3 now he is explaining why he is happy what god did did for him when my enemies turn me back they shall fall and perish at your presence so in the first two verses of this psalm david described general reasons for praising God now from verse 3 he will explain a more specific reason why he is happy rejoicing in God he is praising God for the way that the Most High defeated his enemies just the presence of God his presence only with the person is always sufficient to work to defeat our enemies. Just the presence of God with me is sufficient to defeat our enemies. And their ruin will be complete if God took them in his hand. Nothing can save the enemies from the hand of God. when our spiritual enemies are fallen, this is the result of God's presence. He said, when my enemies turn me back, this was actually fulfilled literally when the soldiers came to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord asked them, whom you are seeking? So they said, jesus of nazareth he told them i am he and we read in john chapter 18 verse 6 his enemies then stepped backward and fell upon the ground so what's written in verses 3 was fulfilled literally when my enemies turn back they shall fall and perish at your presence just at your presence even doing nothing just your presence will make them scared. That's why some church fathers consider these verses reference to the Jews who resisted the Lord Jesus Christ. Turning back, it's a result of God's power alone. Like when you look at the sun, you close your eyes. You cannot. The sun didn't do anything. But just because of the power of its light, you cannot hold it so you close your eyes in the same way just God's presence God's presence will make these enemies will turn back it is a sure sign of a nearly approaching complete conquest of our sin because our enemies are Satan and the demons so if God is present with me the demons will be defeated and I can conquer sin completely when I resist the influence of sin the sin will lose its power St. Augustine says when we flee from the devil our persecutor and follow our Lord Jesus Christ as our leader Satan turn behind us will disappear who will be behind us So the enemies, the conclusion, the enemies cannot stand before God. That's why David attributes the victory here to God only, to his presence and his assistance. In the same way, we should be careful to give all glory to God whose presence gives us victory in our life. I'm sure you remember when David fought against Goliath Goliath was ready with all the armor of war but David told him I come to you in the name of the Lord uh, God of hosts." we do not have to avenge our enemies because I'm speaking here about human enemies, not Satan. As St. Paul told us, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so you will heap coals of fire on his head. The real enemy is not the human being, but Satan who moves them. Verse 4 For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Now David explaining why he is praising God. God justified and established his righteous uh, cause. He was right. He wanted to defend God against Goliath who actually blasphemed against God. So God had defended my cause. And by the ruin of my enemies, God made it clear that he is a just and a good judge. So David is also happy and joyful because his innocence and his righteousness and uprightness of his heart was declared. St. John Chrysostom says, after all, if he had not suffered unjustly, God would not have avenged him. Anyone, if he suffered, if he did not suffer unjustly, so if he is Worthy of suffering, God will not avenge him. God has a throne of judgment where he sits as the judge of all the earth and will do right. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Verse 5 You have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked. I want you to notice nations is plural. The wicked, singular. You have plotted out their name forever and ever. David saw God in action among the nations, righteously judging the wicked. Who are the nations rebuked by God? The nations are those who are doing evil and sin, who are against God, even Israel when they turn it against God, God delivered them to captivity because God is not it doesn't have any bias. Where God reigns there can be no evil Because light and darkness cannot exist. So, nations are those who persistent in their sinful opposition to God and his children. These are the nations rebuked by God. And the word rebuke doesn't mean God reproached him by his word. But when we say God rebuked the nations, means through actions, through deeds, by overcoming and conquering them. And as I told you, nations are plural, but the wicked is singular. So nations can represent sinful people, non-repentant, or sins in general. Whereas the cause of these sins is Satan, the one enemy of mankind, the wicked. So when he said the wicked in singular, that this refers to Satan. He told them, You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Yes, God is, is patient and forgiving. And God gives plenty of time to repent. But if the people decided not to repent, his judgment falls hard upon them and they will be blotted out forever and ever. As St. John Chrysostom said, you have utterly destroyed them, uprooted up, so wiped them out that memory of them has also disappeared. St. Augustine comments on verse 5 and said, we take this to be more suitable to the Lord Jesus Christ than said by him. So you have rebuked the nations. It is not Jesus speaking to the Father, but we are speaking to Jesus, to the Son. That's why St. Augustine said it is more suitable that this verse is addressing Jesus Christ, not said by Jesus to the Father. For who else has rebuked the heathen and the ungodly perished except Jesus, who after that, after he defeated Satan, he ascended up into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to us, uh, that filled by him, filled by the Spirit, the apostles should preach the word, word of God with boldness and freely reprove men's sins. Verse 6, O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. So the first part of verse 6, he is speaking to the enemies, O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and then continue to speak to God, and you have destroyed cities even their memories has perished. So, in verse 6, in the beginning only, David shifted his focus from speaking directly to the Lord to addressing the enemies whom the Lord had defeated. And the psalmist here exalts over the fallen enemy. Uh, The word, O enemy here, enemies of God's people, like in the Old Testament historically, like the Philistines, the Amorites, and other nations. Or, oh enemy, can refer to Goliath. In prophetic sense, who is the enemy? Is the Antichrist, who will come at the end of the ages. So, in any case, David assured the enemy that their evil work of destruction would end in vanity. Destructions are finished forever destruction can be understood in two different ways. Either David saying to the enemy, the destruction that you made finished forever, you cannot destroy anymore. Or David is saying, your destructions finished forever, so you cannot rise again. So it can be either the evil work of destruction end completely, or the opposite, it can be also explained that God destroys all traces of sin. And since he said, O enemy, in a singular, again, the enemy is the devil. Then he spoke to God, you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. God destroyed cities. So the enemy is wholly devoured. And can find no place to settle in our hearts. When this earth will be destroyed at the end of the days, Satan will have no place to reign when all of us go to heaven. The judge destroys all the cities of the enemies that exist within us. That's a spiritual reflection. And there's uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria said their cities were destroyed that is those who were like towers and cities in our heart the love of pleasure, love of world, love of money even their memory has perished they shall not be returned or built anymore these sins inside our heart completely destroyed it will not not return again but shall be like a millstone cast into the sea and found no more at all. Verse 7. So, the enemy destroyed forever. Verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. You can see here the construct. Satan will be destroyed forever. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. So, in contrast to the enemies of his people, the Lord shall sit enthroned forever as king and judge. Cities and nations will perish, but the Lord remain a king forevermore. While all this alteration and disturbance happen upon the earth, God is the only being, unchanged and unchangeable, eternal one, continue. To be seated on his throne in majesty in heaven. And this unchanging dominion of God. Gives us hope and joy and peace. Our God is unchangeable. His throne is forever and ever. When you know that your God whom you worship. His throne can never be turned. His throne remains forever and ever. This will give us peace, security, joy, and happiness. Maybe some expected that David will make the contrast between him and the enemies. Enemies are destroyed by God, delivered me. But David did not put himself. In contrast with the wicked. David as a wise and humble person, he knows that God will judge the wicked more for being God's enemies, not David's enemies. Because these enemies, why they were against David, in reality they were against God. Do you remember when God appeared to Paul before his conversion? He did not tell him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my children? He told him, "Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? So anybody persecuting us, in reality, he is persecuting God, not us. David is looking now for the eventual and ultimate rule of God over all nations. This would be the perfect expression of God's righteous judgment. the earthly courts will end and cannot be 100% fair but the throne of God is always, always upright partiality and unfairness are things unknown in the dealing with the Holy One who is God He has prepared His throne for judgment Verse 8, he shall judge the world in righteousness, not like the earthly courts. And he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. Again, no court on earth can claim that their judgment is 100% just and fair. Not a single court. But God, his judgment is righteous and upright. Verse 9 The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. When you study the book of Psalms, you will find David gives many titles to God. For example, the defender of the lowly, the father of the orphans, the defender of the widow, the guardian of the little ones. Here, David gave God actually. A, a, a different title because David was grateful that God uh, did more than judging the wicked he did not only judge the wicked but rather he also a refuge and support for those oppressed by the wicked if God judges the wicked will be enough but God did not only judge the wicked but he is a refuge and support to those who are oppressed and here David did not say the armies have proved your refuge or the money or the walls, barriers, stronghold but the Lord himself will be refuge for the oppressed St. John Chrysostom says he is saying that nothing in fact is equal to that refuge on the score of easy and security. If you compare any refuge, stronghold, money, uh, military, you cannot compare anything with God when He is the refuge. The other refuge may be subject to scheming and cannot be found promptly and readily can be obstructed by time and place and countless circumstances. By God, you will find Him always, always refuge for you. God, the Lord, will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in the time of trouble. Oppressed, there are many types of oppression. Oppression can be from man or from Satan. But either the operation comes from man or Satan, always refuge is provided in God. In the Old Testament, uh, God told them to build the cities for refuge. So if somebody, uh, one, for example, killed somebody by mistake, he can go to this city and he will be safe. But in the New Testament, we don't have cities of refuge, because God himself is our refuge city. God, David understood that the help of God was not given just because God favored some and oppressed others. It's not based on partiality. But why God actually delivered some and judged others? Verse 10 answers this question and those who know your name will put their trust in you for you lord have not forsaken those who seek you so these people whom god delivered it's because they have a relationship with him knowing his name means they had relationship with god Knowing his name means experimental acquaintances with the attributes of God. Each attribute ensures to hold the soul from drifting in times of danger. Like as I told you, David gave God many titles. The Lord is my shepherd. He's my light. My salvation. Each title came from a certain experience, personal experience. That's why David Knows the name of God. Sometimes when we use these names, we use it based on the experience of others. When we say the Lord is my shepherd, because David said so. But have you experienced God to be your shepherd, God to be your light, God to be your salvation, God to be your way, etc.? When you experience this, then you know his name. Because this name is the fruit of a personal experience with God. The experience of his faithfulness to his people in all ages is just a ground for their confidence to put their trust in you. When I know God was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, so this history will make me put my trust in God. And on the other side, God, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God never forsaken those who faithfully seek God. That's why in verse 11, he said, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion declare his deeds among the people. So, being full of gratitude himself to the works of God, David is eager not only to praise God, but to excite others to join in praising God. He starts in verse 1 and 2 saying, praise the Lord. Now he is emphasizing. And As the special residence of his glory is in heaven, the special residence of his grace is in his church. The word Zion refers to the church. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Zion means the church. So the church is the house of God. He dwells here in the church. There he meets his people. It's called Tabernacle of Meeting, the place of meeting where we meet God. He meets people with his promises and grace. And there he expects we should meet him with praises and services. That's why when we come to the church, we praise him. David here communicated something known among those who praise God, which is when they praise God, it is natural for them to draw others into similar praise when I praise God I want to bring others also to praise God with me and what God does for the souls of men is not only to be declared among the people of God but also God should be declared among the people of the world that's what we call it evangelism we need to declare the name of God among people who do not know Him. In order for the name of God to be exalted and His grace, goodness, mercy will be displayed to them so they may believe in Him and be saved. So why we declare His name to the world? In order these nations may be brought to the knowledge and worship the true God and be saved, and become uh, part of God's family. Uh, As I told you, this psalm is 20 verses, so now we'll stop at verse 11. We'll continue next week. Glory be to God forever. Amen.